Good evening, Refuge. Tonight we'll be continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter as we break down the next two verses in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. My goal tonight is to break down these verses phrase by phrase and explain them to you first in what Peter is saying, both in the context of his original audience as well as what that means for us today. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. Servants, or some of you might have slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures, endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. In our verses tonight, verse 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let's dedicate this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, Lord, would you be our vision tonight? I thank you, Lord, for your word. The psalmist says it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray that it would be tonight. I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things from your law, that we would see you and delight in you, that we would be able to live according to what you have commanded us. Father, I need your help. I need your grace right now to speak on your behalf. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly, help me to speak with authority of your word, not my own. And I pray, Father God, that the hearers tonight would be pierced in their hearts by the arrows of your word. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last two messages, we have seen Peter show us what it means to submit to the authority of human institution while living here as holy exiles. Uh, He has shown us what to expect, but not only that, he has also shown us how we ought to live while this suffering should arise, especially uh, unjust suffering. Uh, Chris did a good job before our break preaching through verses 13 through 17 when he discussed what it meant to biblically honor and undermine Nero. Last week, Chase took the time to preach on verses 18 through 21, explaining Peter's instruction to servants who were called to endure unjust suffering. He made three points in regard to this text. He said, number one, see that this suffering forces us to rely on God. Secondly, Jay said, a life of endurance is pleasing to God. And thirdly, Christians are willing to suffer because they want to believe, excuse me, they want to be more like Christ. If you missed any of those messages or any other messages throughout the year, I would encourage you guys to catch up on our podcast as well as the church website if you don't have the podcast. The point here that Peter is making is that a follower follower of Christ will indeed experience suffering. 
I'm going to say that again. The point Peter is making is that a follower of Christ will indeed experience suffering. We see this all over the letter, and we also see this all over the Bible as a whole. In the earlier verses in Peter chapter 1, we see it as well as here in chapter 2, specifically both in verse 15 as well in verse 21. Peter is telling his readers, this is what you should expect. This is the life that you should expect as a believer of Jesus. This is your new identity. Not only that, this suffering is your calling. And it's not just your calling. This is God's will for your life. This is uh, God's will in that you would take great joy and great delight amidst very painful and sorrowful affliction, uh, uh, suffering that's just and suffering that's unjust alike. As I said earlier, I want to break down these verses for you phrase by phrase, but before we do that, it is important to note the context and what Peter is saying. Our verses for tonight further Chase's point last week on verse 21, where Peter is explaining further the explanation of unjust suffering. That's the context of what we're going to look at tonight. He is drawing our attention in the beginning of verse 21, where Peter gives us the example of Jesus suffering unjustly. If you look down towards uh, verse 21, it reads, for, this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter reminds his readers that Christ has suffered for you. This you here is plural. This you is referring to the holy exiles as a whole. So he's saying, you holy exiles. He goes on, Because Christ Jesus has suffered for you, he has left you an example, an example to all of you. Why has he left them an example? Why has he left us an example? He has left them an example so that they then and us today might follow in his steps. So, as I mentioned, this is the framework that we're going to look at for the remaining of our message. It's going to be important for us to keep this in mind as we go throughout the remainder of our time together tonight. So now let's look at our text, beginning in verse 22. We read, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So first we're going to break down this first part. He committed no sin. The he refers to who? Jesus. Correct. The he in verse 22 and in verse 23 refers to Jesus. Peter is getting us to focus in on Christ's sinlessness and his substitutionary death for sinners. From other texts in the Bible, both in the New Testament as well as both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we can see this proved to be a true and accurate statement. The best way for us to understand it tonight, and especially the magnitude of what Peter is saying, is to go to no other place than Scripture itself. So first we're going to look at an example from the Old Testament. We see in Isaiah 53, verse 9, where Peter is believed to be citing this, it reads, And they made made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, or he committed no sin, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. We can also see this affirmed all over in the New Testament. We can see it in various places, as in John 8, 23, John 14, 30, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
Hebrews 4:15 and 7:26, 1 John 3:5, as well as later on in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. We can see it in a plethora of other places, but those are just a few. And I want to read a few of them for you right now. In John 8:23, remember we're looking at this framework of Christ's sinlessness. He committed no sin. That's what we're looking at, so you want to keep that in mind. Right here we see uh, in John 8, 23, this is Jesus speaking directly about himself. He says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world, meaning I have no sin. Jesus again in John 14, 30 says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. This he in that text is referring to Satan. Satan has no claim on Jesus. He has no sin associated with him. We see again here in Hebrews 4.15 where the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus who is the great high priest. And it reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You can start to see this framework continue to be proved throughout the New Testament. Again, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, Jesus is unstained and separated from sinners. You can see he's continuing to make this point where Jesus is distinctly different. Why is he distinctly different? He's distinctly different because he has never committed sin. John, the beloved apostle, says in 1 John 3, 5, You know that he appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So we also see this. It's not only a true statement that scripture has affirmed uh, entirely, but it's also important, as Peter reminds his reader, of the unjust suffering. Jesus experienced unjust suffering in the greatest form because he has never sinned. Jesus experienced unjust suffering in the greatest form because he committed no sin. Move down with me to the second half of verse 22. We read, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So first we see that Jesus never committed sin, and now we see Peter say, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter is saying clearly that Jesus is free from deceit. Deceit is the action or practice of deceiving someone by hiding or misrepresenting the truth. Does that remind you of someone? Satan. That's a a clear representative of Satan who is misrepresenting the truth, the truth of God. The Greek word here used for deceit is dolos, meaning to bait or to contrivance for entrapping, which is used other places in the New Testament twice, to describe the Pharisees and their attempt to arrest Jesus. They were misrepresenting the truth, which you can look at in Matthew 26, 4, as well as in Mark 14, verse 1. Peter is also making the point of Christ's substitutionary death for sinners, in which he later speaks on it further in chapter 3, in verse 18, in 1 Peter, where he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
We see this explained in a greater way by the prophet Isaiah, recorded in Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12, where he refers to Jesus dying as a substitute in order to remove the sins of the people, God's people. Throughout these 15 verses, Isaiah gives a detailed description of the events that will be fulfilled in the life of the Messiah, Jesus. I would encourage you guys to go and read that further and and spend some time slowly going through those verses in, in Isaiah. We don't have time to look at those in depth tonight, but I would encourage you guys to go look at them. Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. So look with me now at verse 23. We're going to look at the first section and then break down the, the second part. The first section says, or rather the first verse, the entire verse, I'm sorry. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. First, we are going to look at the first section. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Peter tells us straightforward as to what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus was one who saw these events firsthand or experienced in them in firsthand. When he, Jesus, was reviled, what was his response? To revile? No, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, what did he do? Did he threaten the soldiers who were hanging him up on the cross? Or what about the ones that mocked him and who continued to push crowns of of thorns on his head? Or what about the ones who danced around him and mocked him over his kingship? Or what about when he was experienced the full weight of God's wrath? What did he do? No, he did not threaten in return, Peter says. This can be confirmed throughout the entire Bible narrative. We see that the Messiah is distinct. He is different. He is like no other. We see it prophesied in Isaiah 53.7 where he says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was like this lamb before the slaughter. Think about that. Jesus was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like the lamb before its shearers is silent, and he opened not his mouth. We often tend to respond quite differently to unjust suffering. It's far too common for us to quickly retaliate without any hesitation. Jesus did not do that. Instead, he was like a humble lamb. Let us be like this lamb. Let us be like the lamb. Now let's look at the second half of verse 23. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, two things to note. The himself is still referring to Jesus, but there's a new pronoun, him. This him is not Jesus. This him is God the Father. Peter shares with us how Jesus was able to do such a thing as to stand silent amidst unjust suffering. How did he do that? Verse 23 tells us, by continuing to entrust himself to him who judges justly. The word here in the Greek for entrusting means to give over, hand over, 
or to yield up to. Jesus was able to continue because he handed himself over to the will of the Father. Jesus knew that God is the judge and that he is the only one who judges justly. Jesus knows that God will one day make all things right. When everything is said and done, when everything's closed, he's going to make everything right. Every wrong act that has ever been committed, whether in word, thought, or deed, will either be covered by the blood of Jesus or it will be repaid justly by the final judgment of God. This is the gospel message. This is the meta story of the Bible. This is why we can have hope amidst unjust suffering. Because Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb who died to take away the sin of the world, met the greatest form of unjust suffering. He died the death deserving of a sinner who broken God's law. And not only that, he took the full punishment of God's wrath for such a crime. He took it upon himself. He, in turn, gave his precious blood to cover such a debt to ones who would turn to him in faith, repent of their sin, confess him as Lord, and follow him. Hearers, I tell you today, he indeed is risen. Come and taste the living water. He offers it freely. You will never thirst again. And I plead with you tonight, turn from your sin. I'd like to spend the rest of our time together tonight focusing in on practical theology. Some of you might have heard that term. Some of you might not like the term, but I'm going to define how I'm going to use it. When I say practical theology, I mean how can we practically live out what we just learned in our study about God? How can we practically apply these verses to our lives? And I believe we can do so by walking in Jesus' steps. And I want to encourage you guys to do so in three ways. First, I, I urge you to entrust yourself to the will of God. Secondly, I suggest and encourage you to heed the wisdom of the Lamb. And third, I encourage you to pray like an apostle. Number one, entrust yourself to the will of God. James 5.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Entrusting yourself to the will of God means submitting to the life God has called you to as his son or his daughter. As we've discussed in our study, we know that the identity of a Christian is one that is filled with suffering, including suffering unjustly. We can remain steadfast under trial through joyful submission to that suffering through abiding in, delighting in, and obeying God's word. This is what is going to help you walk in the truth of God's will for your life. Remember, your identity as a believer is a life filled with suffering. Number two, heed the wisdom of the Lamb. In, in Romans twelve nineteen, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, for it is written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus did not revile when he was reviled. He did not threaten when he was threatened. Brothers and sisters, we must live lives of humility, not expecting to be excused from unjust forms of suffering. Our Redeemer suffered this way in the greatest fashion. Follow his, his example. Do not re return 
with revile. John Piper comments on this. Therefore, humility does not return evil for evil. Humility does not build a life based on its perceived rights. Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but handed his cause over him who judges righteously. Much of our anger and resentment in relationships comes from this expectation that we have a right to be treated well. But as George Otis once said to a gathering in Manila, Jesus never promised his disciples a fair fight. We must assume mistreatment and not be indignant when we get it. This is what humility looks like. This is what true humility looks like. Peter and Paul give us, the great, give us great moral assistance in this difficult task by reminding us that God will settle all accounts justly and that this temporary injustice will not be swept under the rug. It will be dealt with on the cross or in hell. We need not avenge ourselves. We can leave it to God. And number three, pray like an apostle. Acts 5.29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. We must not be ones who feel as if we can endure to the end and run this race on our own strength. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today, you cannot do it on your own strength. I urge you today that you would be people on your knees, on your face, in your church, pleading with the Lord to grant you boldness to persevere and to proclaim the truth of his gospel. He will answer that prayer because that is a prayer according to his will. Let us walk encouraged by those who have come before us and learn in their examples of holiness. In his book, Why We Pray, William Phillips suggests four reasons why we should pray. He says, number one, we should pray because God is a speaking God. Number two, he says we should pray because we are sons of God. Number three, he says we should pray because God is sovereign. And finally, number four, he says we should pray because we have the spirit of God. I'm going to quickly break down what he means by this. I would suggest you all to get this book, so write it down. It's called Why We Pray by William Phillips. It's a small book, maybe 100 pages, but it will change your prayer life. Number one, he says, We pray because God is a speaking God. From Genesis to Revelation, we can clearly see that our God speaks. He has spoken his word. He has spoken this world into existence. If you look back in the garden before the fall in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve continued to walk in communion, speaking to God. They were praying to God. We can see this clearly throughout Scripture. God is a speaking God. Secondly, uh, William suggests we pray because we are sons of God. We pray because we have now been adopted into the family of God. We now have this direct access to the Father. We don't need any other earthly mediators because we have the greatest mediator. He shares a story about uh, uh, JFK when he has a very intense meeting at the White House. Uh, It's a morning of some day back, and I don't know when, but he says, uh, 
It's a very intense meeting. No one is to come and get the president. He has the greatest people in our nation gathered in this meeting in, in the bunker in the White House. They're having this meeting. At no cost could anyone come into the room and talk to the president or anyone else in this room. About halfway through this meeting, the, the negotiating is getting very intense. It's getting a heated uh, discussion. The door flies right open. Comes running in and sits directly on JFK's lap is his little boy. He has direct access to his father. That is the same imagery that we have as believers because of Christ. We have direct access. Number three, uh, William suggests we pray because God is sovereign. And he says this because if you believe it or not, Wherever you stand on the fence of God and his sovereignty, God is sovereign. And God is sovereign because God says he is. And his word says he is. And William suggests that we pray because we believe God is sovereign. We pray because we actually believe God can answer what we're asking him to do. And he says... He is sovereign, and when you ask according to his sovereign plan, that prayer will always be answered. So you don't have to rest wondering, well, is my prayer going to be answered? Is it not going to be answered? Well, if you pray according to his sovereign plan, which is in the pages of this book, that is a prayer that God will answer in his timing. And fourthly, We pray because we have the Spirit of God. We now, as sons and daughters of Christ, have the indwelling of the Spirit who is interceding, right? Or rather, he's not interceding. Well, he is interceding with groanings that are too deep for words, right? So even when we can't pray, he's praying for us, right? And we have the ability to pray because we have the Spirit in us. That is William's point. So like I said, I would encourage you guys to Go back and read through that book, and there's a lot more that he gets at. But I encourage you guys that we need to be people who pray. As we close out our time together tonight, I would like to leave you with a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we despised of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Brothers and sisters, I urge you tonight to rely on God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to speak. I thank you for Jesus Christ who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Lord, we thank you that he has taken the cup. Lord, we thank you that we have direct access to the Father. We thank you that you have entrusted yourself to the will of your Father. 
We thank you, Lord, for the examples of the men and the women of our faith who have come before us that we can walk being encouraged in their examples of personal holiness. Father, I thank you for the gathering of believers that we have around us today that we can come alongside to be encouraged and to thrust each other forth in the work of the ministry of the gospel. Lord, I pray as your word has been poured out, that you would not allow it to be snatched by the evil one. I pray that it would not fall on a hard heart. And I pray against it being choked out by the carriage of this world. I pray, Lord, that you would water the seed that has been planted and that you would allow it to bear much fruit for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that the hearers of your word tonight would be encouraged, that they would be convicted, that they would be brought to tears, and that they would be brought through their tears and they would be driven by your gospel to walk in joy-filled obedience, that they would be satisfied in you more than anything else that this world has to offer. Lord, we pray this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.